Yes, Travis has asked me to come and fill in. And uh, I forgot my sermon notes, so they're on my phone. So I'm not checking Facebook. I am looking at my sermon notes today. I love these mics right here. They always make me think of the infomercial guys. So if I lapse into like a detergent commercial, you're going to be amazed at how well this detergent works and get stains out. Just uh, ignore me. All right. So today we're going to be talking about Romans 4. But before we get into that, I'm going to open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise and worship your name. You are beautiful and wonderful. Your glory knows no bounds. Forever and ever, we will worship and praise you. And we pray that 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 starts now and it starts and it goes on forever, Heavenly Father, that we can be in awe at your mercy and your grace and your beauty. And I pray as we open up your word that that would be expounded in a way that brings your glory into our hearts even more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm dealing with Romans 4. Today we're going to be talking about justification. Now, justification is the concept that we are made right before God. Whereas once we were sinners, we were condemned in, our, in the wrath of God through justification, we are made right before God. Now, the question is, how does that operate? And in this passage, we see Paul helping us to understand how this operates and also, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. So we have to understand the context a little bit. But let's open up with this passage. Romans 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was, grant, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without, circum without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abram had before he was circumcised. So this passage talks a lot about circumcision. And why would he talk a lot about circumcision? It just seems kind of like a mundane thing. We, we just, you know, we circumcise our boys nowadays, and uh, that just sort of is that. It's a cultural thing. But it doesn't have as much significance today as it did in Paul's day when he was dealing with the Jews, they placed a special emphasis on circumcision. 
And that special emphasis was meant to be the sign that they were according to the flesh. They were in the old covenant. They were the ones who were saved by God. But there was a synergistic aspect to this salvation in their view. And synergistic means they work and God works, where you kind of come together and you both accomplish salvation. But you'll notice that Paul has a different thing in mind here. He's actually working against the circumcision mindset. So before we really dig into this passage, we really got to understand where Paul is coming from. Paul starts this out really in the previous chapter in Romans 3, where in Romans 3, 9, he says, or I'm sorry, in Romans 3 overall, he says things such as in Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. The Jewish audience gasped. They didn't, they were, they, wait, wait, whoa, 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 Paul, you're saying that I am under sin? Just when, as when Jesus looked at the Jews, at the Jews of the day and said, you are slaves. They said, we're not slaves to anyone, which is a curious statement because they were actually enslaved by the Romans. But nevertheless, they said, we're not enslaved to anyone. We are free and our father is Abraham. Our father ultimately is God, they were saying. And Jesus looking at the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious teachers of the day said, no, 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 your father is not, is not Abraham. Your father is Satan, essentially. So Paul tells us, he expounds on Jesus's words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us, no, not at all. We are not any better off as Jews. We are all under sin. This concept is a little bit kind of hard to swallow at first when you fully understand what he's saying here, that we are all under sin. What, is that, what exactly does that mean? Being under sin means that, we, that our hearts are under the sway. We desire sin. We want sin. Naturally, that's our position. Because of Adam's fall into sin, we now have inherited a sin nature that says, I don't want you, God, I want me. Notice what Adam, or what Eve, not Adam, and Adam ultimately, but notice what Eve said to the, to the God of all creation. She said, and Adam did as well, not your will be done, my will. She said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this fruit, I'm gonna eat it, even though I was told not to. Not your will be done, my will. But what did the second Adam say? What did the second Adam say? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was, he was sweating blood. He looked into the very wrath of God and it caused him to just shake because of what was to come, but he didn't falter. He didn't waver. He said, he said, if this cup could be passed from me, if this cup could be passed from me, let it be. But he said, not my will be done, but God's, but your will. So the second Adam, Adam number two, Jesus Christ, who came down, born of a virgin, was fully God and fully man, he looked at God and said, not your will, or not my will, but yours. So he fulfilled the law. But this sin nature was not present in Adam, or in, in, in Christ, of course, the second Adam. It is present in us. So what does it mean for us then? that we are in sin. It means that, as Paul had expounded earlier, we are a part of the massive throng of people who say there is no God, or he does not matter, or I do not have to worship him. Paul says that we're without excuse. In Romans 1, he's very clear. He says, 
everyone knows that God is here. I'm paraphrasing here. Everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows no one is without excuse. You can't go up in the final judgment when Jesus Christ separates the, the lamb from the goats. You can't say, Jesus, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. You should have made yourself more available. You should have been like right there in my face. But do you know what the parable of Lazarus or the parable of the rich man, you remember that? Where he says, he says, please, Abraham, send, send, you know, send Lazarus to go to my family and tell them that they need to repent. And what, was, what did Abraham say to him? Nope, not even if I send somebody back from the dead, will they repent? That's, that's a massive statement. That, is a, that cuts to the very heart of the person. Not even if somebody comes back from the dead, will they repent? Wait, wait a second, that's, that's, a, that's a huge statement because somebody did come back from the dead. Somebody did. He came back from the dead on, th on the third day, conquering death, atoning for sin. And he didn't come back just in a corner. He wasn't just like, well, Jesus is over there. Trust me, the apostles say, I, Peter, nobody else, I, Peter, saw Jesus, just trust me. That's what the false prophets say. That's what Mohammed said. He's like, whoa, 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 just trust me. I, I got this. I got a revelation from God. And that's what the, the, the leader of the Mormons, what was his name? Joseph Smith. He said, I got this. I got a little thing. It told me the word. Just believe me, trust me. It's not the way Christianity was born. Christianity was born in the public square. Paul says more than 500 people saw him. This was something that was, he said, go talk to them. They're, they're everywhere. Some of them have fallen asleep, but they're everywhere. You can go talk to them. Jesus revealed himself to the world and yet he would not repent. So this speaks to our nature. We do not want to be with God by nature. What has to happen? Well, let me go ahead and read Romans 3, the end of the chapter. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the, God, the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. So salvation then comes as a gift by grace through faith our stony hearts must be broken by the spirit. Our heart of, as Ezekiel says, our heart of flesh must be removed. Oh, I'm sorry, heart of stone must be removed and a heart of flesh put in its place. And then it is in that faith that grace is applied to us. But let me, let me, let me read something to you that might be a little bit shocking. We read it a little bit earlier, but if we really dig in to try to understand this atonement and this justification, we might find this shocking. And in verse five, four, Romans four, verse five, it says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So the original Greek term here is the one who does not worship, the one who 
basically separates himself from God. The ungodly, the one who hates God. Doesn't, we read so elsewhere that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. While we were yet sinners, we were, in an enmity, we were at enmity towards God. We did not love him and yet he died for us. While we were yet sinners, and let's, let's read this closely. And to the one who does not work, but believes it in him who justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. That is a massive statement. That is completely opposite of what the Jews and those who say were, were saved by works. Those people say, first become godly. First, turn your life around, become godly, do X, Y, and Z. You'll see it in every false religion. It's always the same. Do X, Y, and Z, and you will be saved. What does, what does Islam say? Five pillars. Follow the five pillars. You got to do these things, right? Then you're going to be saved. Whew, that's pretty hefty. What does Buddha say? He says, strive without ceasing. Those are his final words. Strive without ceasing. That is a huge and heavy mantle placed on everyone who, who dares to try to follow his words. What a terrible fate for anyone who would do such a thing. But if you go to Christ, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why, why would that be? Because if he says you have to be saved by your works, same thing as everybody else. Everybody else says you have to be saved by your works. But Christ says something completely different. He, we are saved by grace, by his work, by his work. He saved us while we were ungodly. We are justified by grace through faith. So these, these are astonishing words that really were shocking to the Jews of the day. They were like, no, 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 wait, 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 hold on. What about Abraham? What about Abraham? Abraham, he did, because of the common rabbinic literature of the day, that's just the, what the rabbis would teach out of, the rabbinic literature. The common idea was, look at all of these Old Testament people. They actually was just the Pentateuch and the, the prophets and the law. And they, look at all these Old Testament people. They were saved because they were righteous. That's what they said. The rabbis said, you're, look at, the, here's an example. Abraham was righteous. Moses was righteous. David was righteous. And that's why they were saved. Paul says, no, flip it around. They were saved, then they were righteous. And that is a truly revolutionary thought. It goes against the grain of human nature because we want a checklist. We want, we want things to do in order to be saved. And now what does Paul say in the previous chapter? And he backs it up here. He says, boasting is excluded. Isn't it a part of our nature to want to say, look how awesome I am. Look how great I can do. Yeah, God did 99% of it. I got 1%. I got this. I got this. No, no, no. All boasting is excluded. The only thing that we could ever boast in is something that's not even ours. It is Christ. Here in this passage, when we read about the righteousness that was counted to Abraham, we are actually reading about a foreign righteousness, not our own righteousness. We're reading about a concept that theologians call double imputation. Complex, that's, a, that's a fancy way of saying 
Christ's righteousness was taken off of him and placed on us. It was still righteousness, but it was accounted to us. And then our sinfulness was taken off of us and placed on him. And on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on that unrighteousness. And he crushed it. He crushed that unrighteousness that was ours. And we were clothed in his righteousness. This is an astonishing truth if we think about it. A foreign righteousness, not our own, because of course, as we read in the Old Testament, our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. I mean, this is, this is insane stuff. Our righteousness, filthy rags, couldn't possibly make it. We can try and try and try, but the thing that God is conveying to us is you do not understand how deep in the hole you are. And it's like trying to help a five-year-old understand. And I've been trying to do this lately. You're trying to help a five-year-old understand certain things. You're like, no, 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 you can't buy this. Why not? You don't have enough money. Wait, I just, I just ask you and you buy it, right? What's money? Money is, this, is a foreign concept. You try to explain it and it's like, you don't have enough money, but what does that even mean? I thought that we had infinite money. Where's, where's this money just sort of flow out of nowhere? But you say, no, 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 you don't have enough money. You can't buy this. Now trying to, to try to explain to a five-year-old that you not only don't have enough money, but you will never have enough money, ever, ever. It's you're so deep in debt, there will, there's no payment that can be made by you that would pay for that. None. I don't think that the five-year-old can fully comprehend that concept. We have to, as Paul says, move out of childish thinking and we have to grow up. But even then, even when we grow up, God in his words in the Bible conveys to us concepts that are just so hard to understand. But his Holy Spirit opens up our hearts and our minds so that we can start to crack open the door. We can crack open the door or he can crack open the door and we can see into a glory that is not our own, but that is God's. And that is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. This is an astonishing idea. And so many people want to deny this, but it is absolutely crucial. We cannot deviate from this wondrous truth. We are saved from sin, from God's wrath. We are saved by grace through faith. Well, what does this mean to our lives? What's the point of even learning about any of this, right? If we think of it from an atheistic sort of naturalistic viewpoint, you know, the popular culture of the day, it's like, that's great. Go put it on a bookshelf. Just live your life. But that is actually, if we were to play into that thinking, we would be, as Paul tells us not to be, taken captive by philosophy that is according to man. Do you know what, uh, the, there's a man called Friedrich Nietzsche. Don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's crazy, just telling you, he's crazy, right? He says the craziest things. He's a philosopher. And he says things like, God is dead, we killed him. And there's so many people out there that live, they're like, yeah, God's alive, that's fine. But they live as though God is dead. They may say, well, you know, God's alive and I, you know, I go to church and everything's great. But the way that they live says a different story. The way that they think, the way that they feel even. So what does this mean for us? 
What is salvation by grace alone through faith alone? What does justification by the blood of Christ mean for us? Well, let's say that you're gonna take your family to the Grand Canyon. And I think I wanna do that someday. I've, I've gone to other parts of the world, saw some amazing things. I remember driving in Thailand one time, Sarah and I and the kids, we went on a mission trip and we were driving in Thailand and just out of nowhere, we, we turned a corner and there was these mountains that just were, in, they were just so cool. They just popped out of the ground and they had a flat, they were like plateaus almost, but they kind of curved off. So they're not like lost mountains, but they're way taller. And I remember saying, whoa, Sarah, look at that. Look at that. And I remember hearing stories of people who would go up to the Grand Canyon, atheists, didn't care. Life was just a pointless sequence of events. Oh, how depressing that is. They walk up to the Grand Canyon and they go, whoa. And something pierces down to their stony hearts. Not to say that they're saved at that moment, but there's something that pierces down to their stony hearts and starts to poke at them. The glory of God in the smallest of ways. The glory of God in the smallest of ways makes them stop and go, whoa, that's amazing. And what happens next? Somebody's with them and they go, look at that. Wow, this is amazing. This is glorious. But what is the Grand Canyon? The Grand Canyon is what I would call, what the theologians call derivative glory. That means that it does not have glory in and of itself. It's like a pot. If you go up to a pot and you say, that's amazing, I'm glad it just popped into existence by itself, you would, my, my wife is a potter. If I was to go to her pot work and, and just say, it's beautiful in and of itself, it has no creator, I would be ascribing primary glory to something that has derivative glory. Derivative just means off of, an offshoot of, because of somebody else's work, that pot has glory. But everything on this earth, including us, are only derivative glory. We get our glory from something else. And what is that something else? There's only one, only one who has primary glory. And that is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God in Trinity and in, in unity. I don't wanna go through the whole Athanasian Creed here, but God, God the Almighty, he is the one who has primary glory. So when you step out and you see the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains, I remember going to the Rocky Mountains and thinking, this is amazing. I had somebody to glorify. I had somebody to go, yes, Heavenly Father, this is yours because it is his. When I married my wife, walked up on the altar and looked at her and her radiant beauty, she's more beautiful now, but back then she was still beautiful, right? And I looked at her and I said, whoa, she is beautiful. She's not beautiful because of herself. She's beautiful because God made her that way. So if I do anything other than holy, holy, holy is the King of Kings, the Lord of hosts, who has made this magnificent thing, then I am not giving God his due. Okay, so what does this all mean for our lives? When we look out on the Grand Canyon, when we see this glory, when the atheist sees this glory and doesn't give God his due, he's trying to ascribe primary glory to something that only has derivative glory. He is faking it. All right, what this means for us is that the gospel shatters, destroys, destroys our way of thinking with a glory that is infinitely greater than the Grand Canyon. Infinitely greater. 
when we are standing before the Lord of hosts, we will be able to do nothing else but holy, holy, holy is the name of the Lord Almighty. Now, I've always, people have asked me the question, won't I get bored in heaven? Well, you have a very narrow conception of what heaven is. Because the heaven idea, most, you know, when you go out and you say, well, what's heaven? There's like, we're already floating around. We get whatever we want. Oh, but I remember this awesome preacher that I listened to, John Piper. He said, he said, if God is not there, that's not heaven. Because think of what we're doing when we say heaven is being apart from God. We're saying that these things are more important than God. No, no, no. There's only one that means, that has meaning and purpose. There's only one that has glory, and that is God himself. I don't want to be around Sarah because she's just cool. She gives me what I want. I want to be around Sarah because I love her. I want to know her. And with the Christian that is where the glory lies. Because now, with our shattered hearts, with our, our hearts that have been made into flesh by the Holy Spirit, the, the door is cracked open ever so slightly, and glory just penetrates us. And this glory that penetrates us changes everything about us. Nothing can be the same. And I always like to think of it this way. I always like to think of it this way. Think about somebody who says, I've been to the war. I've done a lot of reading about World War I. It was awful. World War I is awful. People, they didn't understand uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. They didn't understand shell shock. And they were just thinking these people were being cowards. It was awful to be in the trenches. Just terrible. It would change you forever. So if somebody comes back from that and says, yeah, I've been in the trenches, and they just don't seem different at all. The question is, were they ever actually in the trenches? Were they there? But if somebody comes back from there and is truly transformed, there, there is the mark of someone who actually was there. Now flip it. That's a, that's a negative example. Flip it to the positive example. The Holy Spirit is the one who illumines our hearts. The Holy Spirit comes in and he cracks the curtains open. And when we see what Christ did for us on the cross, nothing can be the same. Nothing can be the same. Our life is broken to pieces. Our life becomes what the apostles said. What did they say? When Peter and, oh, who was it? Who was it? Peter and John, I probably got that wrong. They were standing before the, the council. They were told, stop it. Stop preaching this heresy. What did they say back to them? They say, you, you ask me. Is it whether or not it's right to listen to you or to God. But as for us, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and heard. You see, the early church was marked with persecution. These were people who were going to be tortured to death and they could not help it. Glory had pierced into their hearts and had transformed them to the very core, to the bedrock of their being. And as they go out through their life, as sanctification happens by the Holy Spirit, the curtains are opened up ever so slightly more. And they only really need to be open to crack for insane destruction of our worldly thinking to happen. Because so much glory flows through that, that just ever so slight crack in the curtain. It's just like a, it's like a laser beam. It's a laser beam that, we, that just annihilates our way of thinking. 
So this, this is the why it's important for us. Because basking in the glory of his gospel helps us to understand our love, who is God. It helps us to become broken more every day and it transforms who we are bit by bit, piece by piece. The spiritual man who starves himself of spiritual things, who starves himself of the Bible, starves himself of the, maybe he's going through a dry season, right? No prayer, no Bible, no nothing. He's spiritually starving. He might have a heart of flesh saved by grace, but he's falling away. Not to say that the Lord will ever lose him, of course. He has promised us that he won't. But through that season of dryness, he can become more and more emaciated spiritually. But as we engage in the word of God, as we unwrap these wonderful mysteries that the Lord that God has revealed to us, it transforms who we are. It transforms the way we think. It transforms the what we want to do. It transforms our desires. We no longer want to live as the world lives. We want to live for God. We no longer want to live in a sinful way, in a way that God does not love. We want to live in a way that pleases God. And this is the power of the gospel in everyday practical life. Of course, we need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, or we would be lost in our sins. We would spiral infinitely into deeper and deeper sins, and we would hate God more and more. But because of his work, we love him. And now, now when we look in the, on the glory of the cross, we can say, holy, holy, holy. And then we can hear the words. We can hear the words that everybody who is saved by grace wants to hear. We can hear the words when we stand before the King of King, Kings. He looks at us and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we understand that better now, don't we? Well done, good and faithful servant. The righteousness of Christ has placed on us. We're clothed in his righteousness we can rest in his glory and his righteousness. We don't have to strive without ceasing. Now, all of the work that we do for righteousness is a joy. And it might become pretty hard at times. We might have to make sacrifices, but joy comes in the morning. Though it seems bleak in the night and we say, God, why do I have to give this up? Whatever it might be for us, holding us back from sanctification, when we give it up, we don't opine for the rest of our lives. Oh, I wish I'd never given that up. Oh, I wish I'd not done. No, no, no. Our life becomes lighter. God tells us to give things up, whatever they might be, so that we can be free. And that freedom brings, a, brings more joy. And that joy in Christ brings more worship. And that more worship in Christ brings more joy and more peace as opposed to those who are trying to just do it themselves, trying to strive without ceasing. So that's pretty much what I have for you today. I, ex I just exhort you to don't, don't strive without ceasing. Don't try as hard as you can. Rest in the gospel and then work. First, 
place your trust and hope in the gospel. First, realize who the Holy Spirit is. First, realize that Jesus Christ's work on the cross changes everything. And when that glory comes, then it will be a joy to, to live a holy life, an absolute joy. That's all I have for you today. Make sure to check out our website, divedeep.net, for more content, including blog posts, book reviews, and video content. If you like this podcast, help us out by leaving a five-star review on iTunes and Google Play. Also, check out our main episodes of Dive Deep on the podcast feed and stream live on Facebook every other Thursday night at 7 p.m. That's at facebook.com slash divedeeppodcast. We hope to see you there. Soli Deo Gloria.